Shalom and welcome again to Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. We welcome you and we thank you for joining us today in what I hope will be a very, very interesting and fascinating conversation. Uh, again, we invite you to uh, check out the website, jewishsacredaging.com and the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page. So, as you know, um, the Jewish world is undergoing a whole series of changes. In these last couple of podcasts, we've been examining many of them. Uh, one of the things that is uh, very, very interesting that is happening across the United States of America, and I think also beginning in other parts of the country, um, is the development of all types of alternative minyanim, unaffiliated, independent congregations as the denominational world, let's say, shifts. It could say crumbles, but it's certainly shifting and, and changing certainly from how I grew up. And so to really explore some of that uh, is a pioneer in one of these things. And we welcome to um, today's edition of Seekers of Meeting, Rabbi Judith Greenfeld, coming to us from Los Angeles. Um, Judith is a rabbi and a cantor and the founder of the Nakshon Independent Minion of Los Angeles. So first of all, uh, Judith, hi, welcome. Nice to see you. It's so nice to see you and to hear about what you're doing. I, I'm really excited to be here today. Well, thank you. And, and um, I hope things are well in Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> no smog today and everybody's behaving themselves on the 101 and the 405, where I used to spend a tremendous amount of time stuck in traffic. Um, <laughs> that way. <laughs> things haven't changed. So um, I'm fascinated by, by, first of all, your career path, because you do, rep you also represent um, in many cases, the surgeon, second career uh, colleagues, rabbis, cantors who've come to the rabbinate, the cantorate after another part of their life. But I want to jump right into this idea of what you're doing. What's the Nachshon Minion? The Nachshon Minion began about, I don't know, 16 years ago and was really the hope that there were like-minded people who were not comfortable in traditional synagogue experiences. I grew up conservative for the longest time. I went to a conservative um, shul, and, but I wasn't feeling a certain spirituality. There were things that I liked, certain traditions, but I felt that my needs weren't being met as far as there was, felt like there was a level of it missing. And I dreamed of a place where I could feel the spirituality in the music, in the words that were spoken, in bringing poetry into um, the service. I never understood what it meant. And there's this, um, there's this belief that, especially if you're a conservative Jew, you understand everything that you're saying. I could read like a banshee, but I never knew what I was saying. And I yearned to know what really what we were saying and why services had to be so long and why they could be so boring. And I just um, wanted, once I went back to school and I found out how beautiful it was, I wanted everyone to know. So Nachshon, you may or may not know, I'm sure you do as a rabbi. No, I, I heard it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that you know, um, but I want to share with our listeners. Nachshon was a contemporary of Moses's. And he left. He was a real man who left um, Egypt with Moses. And he, there's a lot of Midrash about him, but it really was him who started to walk into the water at that moment when Pharaoh's troops were about to descend 
on the Jewish people who had just left. And by him walking, I mean, Moses had his arms up, but by because he walked and met God halfway, that's when the sea opened. And that is a commentary. First of all, he's known for taking a leap of faith, which is exactly what I did. I was a cantor at the time. Uh, cantors did not start or found synagogues. And yet, when I opened my doors, people started to flood in because they were also looking for something different and a little more contemporary, but authentic. Okay. So, I mean, this is, this is Los Angeles, California. Um, it may, the success or uh, it's different if it's in other parts of the country, let's be honest with you. Um, cause I know a little bit of LA and certainly, but even here in uh, the East coast in Philly, where this is coming from and certainly other parts of the East coast is also this bubbling up of, of this interest. Who, who comes to the Nakhchonming and kids, multi-generation, older adults, all of the above, whatever. I worked in two major synagogues, uh, Temple Emmanuel for eight years in Beverly Hills. And um, I was always a part of this minion that would get together and show up on Saturday mornings with music. And it had a very different feel. And we studied Torah. Mm -hmm. um, it was part of this, I guess, minion mentality. There was one up at Stephen Wise Temple, but uh, Mordechai Finley had a minion. The minion represented people who were a little bit more serious and wanted to be engaged, um, engaged more. But they were underneath the larger synagogue. So they were kind of this hidden, you know, aspect that not a lot of people went to. So we, you have people, as you, you asked what age group, it wasn't the kids. It was people that were our age, <laughs> um, a little bit older and wanted and were tired of just sitting there and behaving. <laughs> They were feeling as though they had questions. So I saw how successful that was, but it needed a bigger synagogue above it. And then I toyed with this idea, what if we were just a minion? And it worked. Now, you're also talking about the difference between living in LA and back East. I think maybe we have more chutzpah out here <laughs> um, to do that, but it was not easy. I, I have to tell you, so many people would walk in and they'd say, what is this? Some people walked out seeing a woman um, leading this. I was always asked, well, when are you going to get a building? Which was not going to be, which I never wanted. So these minyanim, although they are, they popped up, they have struggled a lot. So do you meet in regularly? Do you, is, in other words, is the Nakshon Minion meeting every Shabbat, uh, either electronically or at a place or hybrid? I have to say that we do not meet every week. I wish we did. The ones that were underneath the bigger temples did meet every, turned into meeting every week. It was once every other week, and then people loved it, and it became weekly. When I began Nakshon, the people were not of that ilk. And once a month was enough for them to keep coming. Um, not an easy thing for unaffiliates, I have to tell you. And it's always been a struggle. And I always have a once a month Friday night service and a once a month Shabbat morning. And it's, you really have to promote that. And you have to, you know, 
entice people to want to come because it's foreign to them. Right. So is this a, a hybrid online only or? Oh, no, this was always in person. Oh, but since, yes, but since we have gone through COVID, it became a hybrid. Absolutely. Yes. Cause I, I mean, I'm the reason why I'm asking, because this is part of this explosion. For example, I know friends of mine who are regular attendees of an online synagogue that only meets online um, uh, every Shabbat, every Shabbat morning. And uh, it runs, they do about two, two and a half hours. So, but combines singing and speakers and Torah study. Mm-hmm. You also bill yourself as a... Um, as a concierge rabbi. Now I know what concierge doctors are. So one has the opinion that at two o'clock in the morning, if I needed a rabbi, pick you up and then you do a house call. Is, is that, is that what define the term concierge rabbi? I would imagine that a lot of the people listening or watching may not have heard that term before. It's a very bold term. And it really was another leap of faith. Over the last three and four years, there has been, as you have already spoken about, it has been a very interesting shift, a crumbling. Um, and I found that what people, and I, it's still been very hard to get people to come together. So I realized as I, as I sent out, um, letters to people and I, and, you know, wanted to understand what they were wanting, they want me when they want me. Yeah. Synagogue life is very hard to keep up to maintain. And the truth of the matter is that most Jewish people leave after their kids bar mitzvah because they don't, they can't, um, you know, they can't say that the payment, they're not using it enough. Right. Um, And we're like an insurance company. You know, our business model, and I've checked out every single business model you can imagine, it's very difficult because it is on an as-needed basis. Therefore, since I was having such a hard time bringing people together, I had to go through a rebrand so that my website went from nachshominion.org to rabbicanterjudy.org. I felt as if not to only exclude the fact that it's just me. However, that's really what was happening since COVID. And our community was definitely fostered by my um, executive director, Sandra Gelfat, um, uh, Jen Hobaika. There, there, was a, there were a lot of people holding this community with our religious school and all of that. But because our synagogue did not have the funding, I started to realize I'm on my own. And so in doing so, many times people will call and say, well, Rabbi, are you available on such and such a date? And just hire me as an as hire. I didn't want to be that. But I realized that with concierge doctors and with concierge um, opportunities, I wanted to make myself more available as somebody that you could speak to, that was available to you, maybe not at two o'clock in the morning, but I have an answering service. And if there is someone who is in need, I do call them. I always have. But I feel that I want to bill myself as what I really do. I care. My synagogue has not been too large so that I really have been there for my congregants. And I love that. That's the best part. So I got to ask you this question, which I'm sure you've been asked a million times. I mean, um, 
how accepting has the uh, rabbinic establishment of Southern California been of your work? So I've always been a rebel. <laughs> I've always been um, someone who thinks a little bit differently. It started 27 years ago when I wrote the book, Minding the Temple of the Soul, with my co-author, Tamar Frankel, about the, the morning blessings, Birchot HaShachar, and adding movement and meditation uh, to these traditional prayers. But they work, and they became people's spiritual um, practice in the morning. It's my spiritual practice. Three years later, Tamar Frankel and I came out with a book called um, entering the Temple of Dreams. You can still get them on Amazon. 27 years ago, they were unheard of. However, now it's normal, you know, and that's how to go to bed. And these are traditions that always were, but that we highlighted and we brought in body, mind, and soul. And it's a beautiful way to bookend your day and very simple and very, you know, delineated and, and also with beautiful sources that are not made up. They come from deep, more than Kabbalah, they come from Talmud, they come from so many beautiful sources. That started my journey, as, as you said, how am I accepted by the um, community? I started as a cantor. I never thought of myself as a rabbi. I went to a school that was um, a little, you know, it wasn't the typical schools like HUC. It's the and academy, you're, you're an academy graduate, right? right. But, and not the Academy from New York. It's, it was a different group of yeah, people. Yeah, the, the LA school, right. Exactly. So, um, you know, Richard, I wanted to be mainstream. I just never was able to do that. And so I've just followed that. When I created this congregation, they wanted a rabbi, but anyone I brought, they didn't like. And so I, I approached the school. And I always loved studying um, all the texts. And, and I realized in Cantoral School, we covered many of the texts. I said, can somebody go back and become a rabbi? And I was in the first class and first of women doing this and realizing that with the change, there was not the same kind of money available for in, in these smaller congregations. And so the new trend was a rabbi cantor who they who was more likely to be hired because then you didn't have to have both so i have been accepted i believe but what does that really mean as you know being a rabbi you're alone you you, you are a lone traveler in many ways i do have many colleagues who value so much what i have done but as you said i'm sure that there are naysayers and that call me a rabbi for rent, but I don't, that's not who I am. No, I, 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 the, I mean, you, you um, mentioned the health and wellness. One of the workshops that is very popular amongst uh, our work in Jewish sacred aging is Jewish approaches to health and wellness. And we do a lot of text study in that because as you're right, there's a, a wealth of texts, both physical and mental health related. Um, so. I know in various communities, colleagues like yourself um, sometimes are embraced by the, quote, rabbinic establishment and sometimes set, you know, at arm's length uh, and it varies from community to community. Uh, but I, 
it, to me, it's an interesting phenomenon because you do represent in many ways a trend that I think is growing uh, in the country uh, because a lot of people, our generation, are looking for what I call serious adult Judaism, not as Dr. Hoffman, one of my former professors, calls it pediatric Judaism. Your journey uh, also uh, very indicative of many, 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 many uh, colleagues. You didn't just, as us old people, <laughs> my generation, you know, a lot of us, we went from undergraduate school right into the HUC. We knew exactly what, you know, we were all programmed. Um, but you had a few stops along the way, if I remember correctly, and you were a dancer, correct? I was. I was Talk a to me. Yeah. I'm sure you're still a dancer, but uh, <laughs> a different type of dance. Um, talk to me about that journey, because I know um, in doing a little research, that's where your, your heart and soul was at the beginning. But like many of the heroes of the Tanakh and, you know, Abraham, there was an event, a death that was a pivotal moment. So talk to me about that part of your journey. Sure, sure. Um, a pivotal moment that you're talking about really happened before I became a dancer. Um, although I do, I always was a mover. Uh, it's, it's something that's comfortable to me and I love. And there's many forms of it that I've learned along the way. Um, when I was 16, my father was murdered in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was a shock. I'm one of five. I'm the youngest of five children. And when you have a tragedy like that. The first thing that happens is you reel back and you say, God, what did I do? You know, why, why, why such a terrible thing? My father was this wonderful Jewish man. He was the vice president of the Zionist Organization of America. His greatest dream probably was to be a rabbi himself. And he was a lawyer. It's very close in many ways. And it was so freak. And what began to happen is I did turn away. I'm your least likely person to have taken this route because I was very angry and I couldn't understand. However, something very spiritual for me did open up because I knew there had to be more than what we see in this world. And I did have uh, an experience where I did, you know, inside have this knowing that everything was going to be okay. However, there was more to that I needed to learn about. So that did open up my life. Dancing um, came to me very naturally, and I have an undergraduate degree in dancing. However, it is not a field that you really can, um, that I couldn't grow in economically, obviously. And although I went to New York, it, it was just not a life that I wanted to lead. Um, because the business is very different than just dancing. But it did teach me discipline, and it did teach me commitment, and it taught me many of the fundamental things that we need if we're going to explore anything that we love. I, that, that shifted, and, and as I got older and I needed to create a business, I created a business uh, when I moved to Los Angeles of um, in-home personal training. And it was in the Jane Fonda era. I, I think we come from similar generations. Well, I remember those videos. <laughs> People wanted that kind of 
treatment. They wanted to feel like Jane Fonda, whatever. And there weren't the home trainers at that time. Then, it be, you know, it's now how popular it is. And I had a celebrity clientele, which was really interest, an interesting part of my life. L.A., babe. L.A. Right. It's got to be. But there came a, a point where I felt that it was empty because I, there was nowhere for me to go. And I had an experience also that I used to do a lot of meditation, dream work, because I was very fascinated and worked with a brilliant dream teacher, Connie Kaplan, who has written many books about dreaming and Native American dreaming and how we dream half of our life. And it's the dark. And so I was very curious about that and learned so much spiritually through her. And I was in a meditation class and they said, find your Christ consciousness. And it jarred me because I thought to myself, I don't have a Christ consciousness. And that's not to say that others don't. It's important to have, if you have your Christ consciousness. However, since I didn't, I realized my meditation and doing these practices were to find my purpose, to find out who I am. And something, again, guided me and said, if you want to find your identity, you better go back and look at your Jewish roots. And then if you don't like them, go somewhere else. But you were born Jewish. The one thing none of us have control over, what we're born into. And in our search for identity, we at least have to delve into that, know what we like and don't like. We can choose. But when I delved into Torah and used some of the mystical traditions to, because they were very interesting and they aligned with dreaming and, and all of those spiritual facets, I wanted, I pulled it down into the basics of Torah and I found everything is there. Right. So that's how it came into my life. Now, I still feel that a lot of Judaism is sitting. You sit in a pulpit. You, we're, we're rationalists. We think. And I'm a very kinesthetic learner as a result. And so are many, not just children. I realize when you're in front of a congregation, I wrote my thesis on this, you have many different learners. You have visual learners. You have tactile learners. You have um, environmental learners. And that's why, and, and my job has been to connect to all of them. And Judaism on its own does because it's so sensual. It's what do you see? What do you smell, taste, hear? I wanted to put that into practice and, and break out of those boundaries of you sit in synagogue and you read because not, people weren't feeling things. I wasn't feeling things. And when I brought it to um, more into the body, I realized, wow, this work, this is so powerful. Very scary. I don't recommend you moving around in temple, although people do. But in a, in a workshop situation to open up those prayers, so much happens when you give yourself space to move. Do you use in, in your work in, let's say, the minion and, and even in some of your kasha, do you use breathing techniques? Always. Right. Always. I mean, and there's so much in the siddur, the breath of life. I mean, Oh, oh, first, yeah, right. The Midrash, the beginning of Genesis 1 to the Midrash on the death of Moses, it's all about, and there's people writing about, you know, the word of God is really a breath. Um, it's beautiful. You, you also, um, if I remember correctly, take some of the traditional 
you know, practices, you create, recreate, reimagine them. Again, that's the best word. So if I, I, I think I stumbled across something that you did with Tashlich with seeds before we start, you know, losing time here, just give me a little background because, you know, people who will go to the water at Roche and, you know, throw the, cast their sins into the water. You didn't do that. What did you do with seeds? Yes. Um, you know, I love building on the traditions and being creative. And I, I, I hope people who are listening realize that you can do that. Mm-hmm. But I want to know what the basis is. So Tashlich is this practice of throwing our throwing crumbs, breadcrumbs on the water. Because I didn't have a traditional high holiday service, I invited people to the beach. I play sound bowls. I feel that sound is quite is a very profound way of opening people, opening their hearts and minds. And that's what Nusach, that's what our prayers were meant to do and don't always do. Now, it's not a new age thing because think about the Torah. God spoke and the world came into being. What is the spoken word but sound and a vibration? And so in thinking that way, interesting because only in California, right, I played these amazing crystalline sound bowls and the dolphins were behind me. It was really amazing. And being on the sand also is a conductor. So that was the one powerful thing. And I had people do journaling. I wrote it. I made a journal for them to really look at what Rosh Hashanah, look at the underbelly. What are we supposed to do? We look at who we need to forgive. And I explain forgiving as it's forgiving to God to take care of, not forgetting, but letting go of the drama and the story and giving it to God to judge. Well, with that in mind, this year, um, I had people take breadcrumbs and throw their breadcrumbs, as we said, a prayer to let go. But I also gave them, after they had done that, a packet of seeds, seeds of intention, because that is also what we are doing at the High Holidays. We are planting, uh, you know, our new ideas and also casting them to the wind in a way, but I didn't want to cast them in the wind. I wanted people to plant them in the ground so they become real and grounded. And that was very powerful. Who have you, who have you have been your, let's say, top, if you can categorize it, but the people who most influenced you on your spiritual journey, Judith? I have to tell you that I'm a traditionalist at heart. And I really, I may have many of these spiritual um, qualities and viewpoints. But I love tradition, and I have to say, Rabbi Mel Gottlieb, who is Orthodox, who's an amazing, has was always an amazing teacher. Uh, Tamar Frankel, who's a PhD, who was um, the head of the rabbinic school, always was an inspiration. Rabbi Mordechai Finley has been an inspiration. I love teachers like Maimonides, who actually talked about all of this. Yeah. Yep, in those yep. early, early years, he's my hero. I love Rabbi Sachs, and I got to meet him before he passed away. And he is probably my very favorite uh, teacher. He continues to teach me in his beautiful writings. Love Rav Cook. Um, some of these people are alive, some not. But these are my sources. And of course, Reb Nachman of Breslov. Um, those are some. Oh, and. <laughs> 
Aviva Zornberg is amazing. Um, I am, really love her work and her lyrical work. Um, and these have been, you know, constants in my life of listening to and hearing them speak. How and, does God speak to you, Judith? How does God speak to you? I feel like God leans into me. You know, I, get a, I feel like a lean or I don't want to say I hear voices, but I hear a lean, you know, it's like move. I find that um, God speaking to me is when all the doors close, you know, no matter what I do, I just have to surrender and get quiet, which I don't like all the time and look at what is in front of me. And those are my road signs. That's what happened this year in becoming, quote unquote, a concierge rabbi, not in a superior way, not I only cater to one person, but using that term to, to really put out there as there's a new, there's a new trend. And there are rabbis who really want to be there to help guide people and teach them in the modern world when, you know, and, and that are approachable. Um, these were things that I have had to do because I love this work as look, I mean, look at you, you are also um, being leaned into and opening a new oh, pathway. That's a, right? it's a whole different conversation. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So um, we've been talking with Rabbi Judith Greenfield, Rabbi Cantor, founder of the Nachshon Minion in Los Angeles, concierge rabbi, Somebody wants to get a hold of you, Judith, to, to ask a question or perhaps learn from you or find out where you may be speaking. The website to go to is rabbicanterjudy.org. Rabbicanterjudy.org. Judith, thank you very, very much. I, I wish you continued success, but most of all, I wish you health because in this day and age, um, it's really becoming uh, really without it, as you know we're uh, in um, a little bit of a problem. So thank you very much for joining. Good luck. Um, take care of yourself. And thank you. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you very much. To all of you, thank you again for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Again, I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. We thank you for joining us. If you'd like to um, help continue these podcasts and our work, you go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com and go to the conveniently located donate button, click on that, just follow the prompts, that'd be great. If you or your organization would like to sponsor a series of these podcasts, just email me at rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com and we'll take it from there. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of the Beckin Media Companies here in Bucolic and lovely Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a big shout out to our producer, Steve Rubetkin. Again, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Adras, and until we see each other again on the next Seekers of Meaning, please take care of yourself, stay healthy, be kind to one another. Shalom.